I am so honored to have Jim Phelan here with me today for a video cast. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Frederick. Nice to be here. You have this like very distinguished career, and in, in, including, by the way, the Distinguished University Professor title at The Ohio State University, where I am um, delighted to also share space with you. Um, let's talk about how you got into rhetorical narrative theory, Jim. What's your origin story? Okay. Well, um, you know, uh, I guess I, I'll start with why I went to graduate school, uh, which is that I, I was really a, you know, taken with the activity of reading fiction, uh, particularly the novel. And uh, as an undergraduate, it was sort of very appealing to me that it would be possible to make a life in which I could get paid for reading and teaching and writing about fiction. Um, and to some degree, that was a little bit naive and, uh, because I didn't really understand what, uh, you know, the graduate study of uh, English was like at the time. And when I first got to graduate school, I was really pretty thrown in the sense that it felt to me that what was happening in my classes didn't have that much connection to what I was doing when I was reading, you know, to prepare for class or whatever. Um, and I, you know, and this sort of the whole thing about what it meant to be doing um, scholarship in, in English studies, um, I didn't really, I had trouble getting my head around. Um, but then at the end of my first year, um, I took a course with a professor named Sheldon Sachs. And it was, the course was 18th century fiction, British fiction. And on the first day of class, uh, there were about 30 of us in the class. He said, um, all right, uh, let's just, uh, how many of you have read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice? Everybody, I think, raised their hand. He said, all right, well, tell me what it's about. And people started going around, and one person said, well, it's about, you know, the power of first uh, appearances, uh, first impressions. And somebody else said, uh, well, it's about marriage in an inquisitive society. And, you know, we went on like that uh, for a while, and then, uh, Sachs paused and he said, you know, I'm struck by the fact that nobody has said the story about how two people meet and fall in love and get, get married. And, and, he's, and we were like, well, yeah, but it, I mean, that's so obvious, right? And all well, this other stuff is what's really important. And he was like, no, well, if you want to explain how um, you get to that other stuff, you need to pay attention to that story. And I was like, yes, you know, this is like, this is somebody who's sort of connecting to the way, to that, making that, that connection between what I was doing as a reader and what I would be doing as a sort of more or less professional, you know, graduate student. And um, one of the interesting things about that course then, you know, was that sex sort of went on to say, you know, if we ask these questions about our experience, we can then ask about, well, what's the cause of those uh, experiences? What's going on, you know, in, in the ways in which these uh, stories are put together? Um, and how are authors in anticipating what readers might do? And how are readers responding to what authors are doing, right? And in that way, I sort of was the beginning. I had a glimmer of, oh, there is something that, there is maybe a place for me 
um, in this profession in which I could, you know, write and think about that uh, uh, and so on. And so more broadly and sort of over time, sort of jumping from the origin story to, you know, what rhetorical narrative theory is doing, uh, in part, it, it sort of starts with the idea that um, narrative is um, an, an action, right? An, an action in the sense that in the way in which I've come to define narrative, somebody's telling somebody else on some occasion and for some purposes that something happened, right? And that's that, that telling for some purpose kind of gets at the rhetorical um, situation. So somebody, you know, trying to do something in relationship to somebody else by using uh, the resources of narrative. And then there are other dimensions, lots of other dimensions to it too. I mean, there's the sort of the general idea that narrative is a way of knowing and, and thinking. Narrative is a way that we make sense of our experiences in the world. That's compatible with and very much a part of it. So, so as in a way, as I'm making sense of my experience, I'm also, uh, you know, doing that uh, for a certain kind of purpose in a particular occasion in relationship to a, a particular audience. Um, so that's, that's kind of the big picture and, the, and that, that sort of project. All right, well, you know, how do we explain this? How does it work? Uh, what are the varieties of ways in which people have uh, engaged in storytelling and responding? Um, you know, and, and that, that's a big project. And then the other side of it is to say, keeping with the idea of the experience of it, um, that it's a multi-dimensional thing, right? It's, it's good stories engage us, um, or, you know, cognitively, they engage us emotionally, they engage us ethically, they engage us politically, ideologically, and so on. And then once you say that, you say, okay, well, how do those things relate to each other? And, you know, how, do we, how, how might we be able to give an account of those, those kinds of things? So, and you started, you started in the uh, future. Yeah, you started publishing on this already in 1981 and, of course, continue to do that. So you've really, uh, in terms of enriching and nuancing the concepts and the devices used to construct narrative experience, wow, you've like a, a career of this. And then, of course, teaching students. Um, somebody telling somebody else, you've kind of already mentioned this. So... For people that might be outside of our profession, could you maybe give us a couple of examples of how we might bring this into um, everyday lives, our everyday lives today? Sure. Um, you know, I've recently written a, a piece on um, the impeachment um, inquiry um, and the way in which narrative was very much a part of that. Um, and, and also the way in which that's very much a, a, a kind of contest of narratives. So, you know, the Democrats and the people who brought the impeachment had one narrative about what Trump did in relationship to Ukraine and, uh, and the Republicans who were defending him had another one. And then the question is, all right, well, how do they, how do they play out, right? And one of the interesting things um, that I... Notice by sort of thinking about, you know, 
this context of narratives from a rhetorical perspective was that in uh, Devin Nunes's um, concluding uh, statement um, at the end of the period in which the, the House Judiciary Committee was you know, considering the articles of impeachment, um, the contest was really sharp because uh, Adam Schiff had gone and he made his closing statement and basically it was you know, his account of what Trump uh, had done and the way in which it was um, you know, violating the Constitution and by trying to get a foreign power to investigate a political opponent and using, you know, funds appropriated by Congress for that purpose. And so he had, he had a pretty clear narrative and a pretty clear sense of, you know, what the narrative meant and, you know, what the, and, and the way in which that, that led up to the sort of inescapable conclusion that they should, you know, he should be impeached. Nunes, instead of contesting the narrative directly, right, sort of opted out of the contest and instead did an ad hominem attack, not so much on shift, but on the whole uh, democratic uh, process, right? And he went back to the election from 2016 and said, okay, you know, since that time, um, the Democrats have been trying to uh, oust Trump, right? And then he characterizes that as an effort to overturn the election and all that kind of thing. So it was this really kind of very fascinating example of a, a sort of what we would expect as the normal contest in, in the impeachment. Nunes opting out of that, but in, in, in opting out of it, substituting a whole other narrative. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that if you think about it then from the position of somebody else, somebody who's being told, right, by opting out, Nunes uh, sort of doesn't give any reassurance to the somebody else who might be troubled by, uh, you know, Schiff's account, right? Or the actual, you know, raw material out of which the narrative is being built, right? What happened in that phone call um, to Zelensky and all that? So he opts out of that, and, uh, but instead is trying to, you know, make this ad hominem uh, uh, case that depends upon this other narrative, which also has lots of holes in it, um, that, that, you know, not, doesn't take a lot to analyze it. But think about the somebody else too, right? Who is he really speaking to? But he's not speaking to the American people who are worried, or even Republicans who are worried about what Trump did. He's speaking to Trump, right? He wants Trump to approve what he's saying, right? So this narrative about, you know, they're trying to oust me from the beginning is very appealing to him. And he's also, he's also to somebody else, it's also his uh, Republican colleagues in the Senate who are going to vote, right? And he's trying to provide cover for them to, to defend Trump. Right. But it's also fascinating in that he can't, he, he seems at least, he elects not to try to provide the cover by going at, giving an account of the, of the actual events, right, that can counter what Schiff and the Democrats have, have proposed, right. 
So it's really, you know, I think it's very illuminating to sort of what happened if we think about it from the perspective of, of, of rhetoric, right? And then, of course, you can think about, all right, well, what did happen? And, and you know, finally, you say, what, there's something about power going on here, and there's something about the way in which, um, you know, Republican control um, sort of was more important than the facts, you know, or at least the, 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 the plausible narrative of the facts that was offered by the Democrats. And that's sad. <laughs> um, but, you know, but again, I think this way of thinking about it sheds some light on it. Absolutely. So that's, that's one thing. I mean, another was just, you know, how do we, um, how do we tell stories to each other? Um, you know, what do, what do we say on a particular occasion? Um, you know, and, and I think what we're, what I would emphasize is that what we say on a particular occasion is really influenced by our understanding of whom we're talking to um, and what we want to accomplish in relationship to that audience, right? So one of the one of the consequences of this is that rhetorical narrative theory, by focusing on this nexus of tellers and audiences and purposes, right, takes a different stance toward the um, sort of elements of narrative. Right? It's very interested in the elements, but rather than building a, a theory based on the elements and their relationships, which is sort of what structuralism has done and what a long tradition of narrative theory has done, it sort of flips that and says, well, those elements are important, but we can better see their importance when we think about how authors use them in relationships for, uh, in relationship to their audiences on particular occasions for particular purposes. Yeah, that's really, um, thank you. That's so crystal clear to me. Um, Jim, have you done work on Twitter and the teller, the purpose and the audience in those spaces? And is it, has it changed at all what you kind of, or has it added to the kinds of devices that you've identified in just regular fiction or in nonfiction news? Yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't done any detailed analysis of it, right? But but it seems to me that it it fits. Um, what you would be then thinking about, though, is that you have different kind of constraints, right? The limited number of characters and, uh, uh, you know, the need to be uh, pithy and, and so on. So certain kinds of resources would get um, more attention right than others right so a lot of stuff uh, so like if we were to make the, the the sort of standard list of narrative elements we would say um you know character event time space perspective um so on right i think in in twitter what what you'd see most often is um character perspective time space would probably be you know less important right 
again, not not in all cases, but but it's just the idea that okay, in a given in a given situation with a particular set of um, you know interests and and purposes, these these elements would probably become uh, more prominent. Uh, right, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't think. Um, I mean, just on a really simplistic level, I don't think I've read a tweet that has kind of embedded levels of sort of temporality, like flashbacks or flash forwards. Right, um, right exactly, yeah. Um, so I'm, you've kind of shared this already with us, but um, what's the big vision? Uh, I know that I've, we've, you've shared some of this, but yeah, what is the research, Jim Phelan research program? Yeah, so I, I mean, uh, over time, I think I've really come to try to think about how close I can get or how far down the road, I suppose is what I mean, um, how far down the road can I get to giving a kind of comprehensive um, rhetorical account of, of narrative and narrative as a way of knowing, narrative as a way of acting, doing, right? And so, you know, I've written a book about style. I've written about character. I've written about plot, although I've thinking rhetorically, I've sort of transformed plot into progression. Um, I've written a lot about um, uh, narrative perspective. So I have a book on, you know, character narration. Uh, and, and in each of these books, I've also, you know, paid a lot of attention to the readerly side Right, so I'm looking at I'm looking at elements of narrative, but I'm looking at how they're used by authors and then the consequences for readers. So that's led me into thinking about ethics uh, in particular, uh, and and the relationship between affect and ethics. Um, so uh, you know, it's it's that sort of that's the direction that I'm going. Um, I. I have written some about time. Um, I haven't written a lot about space, but you know, again, a little bit of that. So just trying to think about all the elements, how they relate, what are the um, larger uh, consequences of them for uh, you know, the author audience purpose uh, relationship. Um, so another, another piece of that that's sort of developed, it, it, it came with um, the book I wrote on character, which is my second book, uh, Reading People, Reading Plots. And I started with the question of, well, what is a, what is a character, right? And at the time, it was in the 80s, a lot of um, discussion was going on uh, among structuralist critics that character was, was either um, simply uh, a group of predicates um, under the heading of a proper name, um, or even a more extreme version that um, in print narrative um, character was just black marks on the black page, right? And that, given my interest in experience, right, that never seemed very convincing to me, right? But at the same time, I thought, okay, yeah, well, they're, they're tapping into something, right? Narratives are constructed, right? So I, I developed this idea that character had three components, what I call the mimetic, characters are like people, um, a, a synthetic, characters are constructed, 
um, and they play roles in their in the in the narratives in which they appear. And then there's a thematic component. Characters have some ideational um, dimension, uh, and they also have a kind of representational dimension, right? So you know, race and ethnicity, gender, and so on. A character, you know, so a, a, a powerful female character like Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice, or you know, one of Cisneros's uh, protagonist, right? That that's a you know, those peop those characters have strong mimetic components, but they're also you know have representative functions, right? The Austin and Cisneros are thinking about not just this woman, but women, and not just, you know, this class position, but class positions, and, you know, uh, not just, you know, Austin doesn't think much about race. She presupposes that we're in a white world and so on, whereas Cisneros, you know, thinks a lot about that. And so, you know, thinking about the, the mimetic thematic relationship, and then also to think about, all right, if, if in cases like this, the mimetic thematic purposes are pretty important. Well, then how do you construct, how do you handle the synthetic to advance those mimetic thematic purposes? Um, and then beyond that, then I began to see, okay, well, this mimetic thematic synthetic thing also applies to characters, but it also applies to sort of more broadly to kinds of interests readers can have. Right, and then those interests can vary in, in different uh, narratives, right? So, you know, sometimes we want to be immersed in, in the, the life of, a, of another person, but other times, you know, there's, some, there's value in the kind of metafictional thing in which where, you know, authors are foregrounding the fact that they're working with you know, kind of constructs and the characters aren't real and, you know, things like that, so. Yeah, no, um, that's great. I, I remember um, sort of how beautifully and potently you write about Zora Neale Hurston in uh, that collection, Analyzing World Fiction, that I put together. Um, so why bring this into our classroom spaces today? You talked about your experience as a graduate student and feeling a little bit not quite like it was working for you for different reasons. Um, yeah, tell us why it's important today. Yeah, well, I think there's lots of things to do with it in, 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 in today's classroom. And um, one is that you can start with, um, you know, readerly responses. And then the question, and then the move, the rhetorical move is to, is to honor those things, right? But then to say, all right, a, a couple things. One would be to say, um, like in, like Sachs taught me way back, what are the sources of your responses? Um, and then when you get questions about disagreement, which you often do because we are different people and so on, um, is to then say, all right, well, why might we disagree uh, in the way that we do? How can we use our disagreements as a ways to sort of further our understanding um, of text uh, and so on? And and. Furthermore, you know, so that's just sort of a, a kind of methodological way, but the, the larger vision still, uh, you know, holds, right? That if we can understand Jane Austen or Cisneros or Tony Morrison or whoever, we have the capacity to grow, 
right? To change, to learn new things, to see the world differently, right? And so the idea of wanting to, so when we talk about the somebody else, right? We can talk about actual readers and then also talk about authorial readers, right? Authorial and authorial audience, right? So that the hypothesis, the rhetorical model suggests that, okay, an author, going back to the idea of author, audience, purpose, nexus, the author has a certain kind of audience in mind, right? Um, so when the actual reader comes, part of the challenge for the actual reader would be, all right, what is the author expecting of me? What am I supposed to know? What do I have to do? How can I go from where I am to join that hypothetical audience that the author has constructed? And then if I can do that, then these kind of payoffs can happen, right? And I can, I can learn from these other people. At the same time though, I also can come back to the idea of, well, I'm still, I'm still this person. What am I gonna do with my experience in the authorial audience, right? And that's something I think that we can talk about productively in the classroom as a group, right? And, and there, so in, in, in trying to get people to join the authorial audience, the, the idea is to try to see what kind of consensus we can reach, right? And we don't have to, you don't have to force it. You don't have to say, all right, you have to read it this way, right? And you can also recognize that even that consensus is a kind of tentative one, you know, and you might change it later on the next time you read or, you know, read with another group. But there, the idea is to try to reach consensus. But then when you take the next step and you say, all right, well, having, having done this work and been in this authorial audience, asked to, to have these ethical judgments, asked to think about the world in this way, what do I think of it? What do we think of it? Right? And there we might get different uh, answers. And that's, and, and that's good. And that's rich, right? Because a couple of things follow from that. We learn more about our own commitments. Right? I think about this because this, these kinds of things are important to me, right? Then we can also then learn some, some, we can go back into the text and say, okay, well, this part of it, you know, I can say, all right, I, let's say I'm resisting this part of the text. Then I can go in and say, all right, why am I resisting? What, what is it that the author has done? Um, should I keep resisting or should I, you know, is there, uh, what had she done maybe to try to anticipate my resistance um, and so on. So I think, I think at that, you know, that it's, 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 when it works, it's, it's a pretty productive classroom. It's pretty, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great. We all know that representation matters for better and for worse, but providing our students and us generally with tools to understand the nuances of how that is sort of delivered or um, how that is um, kind of interfaced with us, really, really important, right? Right, right, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah and I think it's a way, you know, students feel um, that their ideas matter, right? It's not uh, just a matter, it's just a question of, all right, you know, distinguished university professor is gonna tell you what to think about, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know? It's like, no, we, we build this together. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and we have this common thing of trying to understand this 
art object that somebody has made for us. And then we think about, all right, well, if we get to the understanding, then what do we do, right? And we can build that together too. Jim, the, you mentioned earlier um, a kind of impulse, a research impulse to be comprehensive and maybe even a kind of unified theory, right? Developing from all of your work. And I see this especially in the directions that you've been uh, going um, institutionally here at OSU with establishing medical humanities. And of course, this very much a part of a narrative and medicine um, um, field, I, I suppose. What is, yeah. what is all of this? What is narrative and medicine? What is medical humanities? Yeah. Yeah. So I think there are a couple ways to, to go into that. First, I, I talk a little bit about um, how narrative medicine fits within my sense of the narrative uh, theory field more broadly. And then I could talk a little bit about um, my role and then a little bit about uh, medical humanities. So, um, you know, uh, you know this, um, but I'll just, you know, review it. One of the things that happened in narrative theory is the narrative turn, right? It's sort of a recognition that um, narrative didn't just belong to literature and literature departments, uh, literary critics, but that it was something fundamental to multiple disciplines, right? So think about law, what I was saying before about the contest of narratives, right? What's, what's a trial about a contest of narratives? So, so, you know, in the legal profession, learning something about narrative and the way it works makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, in business, they're very interested in, uh, you know, narratives of change. How do you change the culture of a, of a business, right? What, what goes into all that? And, and you can go down the list, right? So, so the relevance of stories for so many fields. Well, one of those fields then was medicine. And part of the, um, you know, insight there really is th that um, storytelling is essential in so many levels of medicine. Um, but just just sort of get it to the core, the encounter between a caregiver and a patient is an encounter that's all about narrative, right? So what's your history, right? What brings you here today, you know, et cetera. Um, so with that, if you start with that as a kind of, you know, first, uh, motivating idea, then you can say, all right, well, it makes sense for people, both patients and caregivers to learn more about narrative. And then you get to the idea that, okay, learning about narrative, becoming narratively competent can enhance medical competence. It can, you know, influence more positive outcomes and so on, right? So, so then narrative medicine kind of comes, comes in right there, right? Say, okay, the more we can understand the way narrative works, um, and the more we can understand the way 
it works in particular locations and purposes of medical encounters, um, the better those encounters can be. Um, so, so that's that's the impetus there, and and so in, to some degree, there's a kind of it's a two-way traffic thing. There's a kind of outreach to medical community, doctors, um, medical schools, et cetera, to say, okay, there's value in learning about narrative and the way it works, right? But at the same time, there's um, traffic in the other direction to say, all right, well, what might be distinctive about medical narrative that you know, existing narrative theory hasn't fully um, you know, done justice to and, and so on. So you, you set up this kind of uh, dialogic thing. Um, so there's a lot more to say about that, but I'll, I'll pause there and then just sort of jump to medical humanities. Uh, so what narrative medicine is a kind of um, example of what medical humanities is uh, interested in more broadly or its project more broadly. And I understand that project to be um, saying that the perspectives of the disciplines of the humanities and the social sciences as well, medical humanities is often a, you know, a shorthand for medical humanities and social sciences, um, that, that these perspectives on medicine um, have a value um, that's at, that is potentially as important as the traditional um, perspectives of you know, biology, anatomy, um, you know, the sciences that go into um, what we think of as medicine and becoming expert in medicine and, and so on. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the big project of, of um, medical humanities. And, and I want to stress that it's not oppositional, right? Nobody in medical humanities is saying, you know, stop doing biological research, um, you know, but it is saying, all right, well, let's put that in, a, in some kind of context, right? Or to say, all right, there are all these technological developments, right? But let's think about how those technological developments uh, can be, you know, more productively implemented. So there's a lot of, so, you know, there's so much, um, you know, medical record keeping now, which is digital, right? But one of the consequences of that is you go to go see your doctor and the doctor has his or her head in the computer typing and not looking at you, right? And how does that affect the, how does that affect the, you know, encounter and the storytelling and the sharing and the, you know, dialogue, right? So it's these kinds of, you know, that's a sort of a simple example, but, but I think it illustrates some of what you know the medical humanities is trying to trying to do yeah no that's really great wonderful um the you know of course also helping those in the healthcare professions to ask maybe different questions as well right to ask right. different questions um you know having trained and you know having taken a course in you know women's sexuality gender sexuality um suddenly doctors kind of thinking about uh has another frame to bring into this right 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 right. and a different narrative is going to emerge from that right um 
Right. So there's also interesting evidence about, um, and it's still developing, but you know, one of the one of the big findings of uh, medical, you know, sort of medical training in our American medical schools has to do with um, effects on empathy. So if so, first year medical students score very high on standard uh, empathy scales, and fourth year medical students score low. Right. So, what's happening in their training? Right. So part of the idea would be to say, you know, one hypothesis, and there is now research developing which supports this hypothesis, that you know, engagements with narrative. Um, engagements with the humanities uh, actually can counter that decline in, in empathy among medical students. Mm, right. Powerful. Yeah, really powerful space. Um, yeah. Jim, this is sort of a selfish question because it's, well, you know, you published this wonderful piece in the um, Oxford uh, volume on comics that I put together, but how would you teach or talk to someone or how did you write about even um, this memoir, this cancer memoir, Cancer Made Me a Shallower Person? Yeah, well, first I want to thank you for the invitation to, to write the piece and the opportunity to do it. And I'm delighted to be part of the collection. Um, well, I think go back to, you know, principles of rhetorical theory. Um, Think about the, the, the somebody telling um, the audience um, the occasion um, and the purposes, right? So one thing I think in terms of the occasion um, in 2006, right? So Miriam Engelberg gets diagnosed with breast cancer at a relatively young age, right? Um, so what is, how does she respond to that diagnosis? Well, one of the things that she comes to realize is that writing comics and drawing comics provides a certain kind of therapeutic, there's a certain therapeutic value to it. Right? So, but then you can say, well, why might she be doing it this way? Why, and you can see in the title there, Cancer Made Me a Shallow Person. There's a certain kind of irony that she's that she drawn to. Um, and there's a way in which she's, that title and that irony shows a kind of an awareness of her relationship to uh, another kind of popular um, and even celebrated um, narrative about dealing with cancer, right? Cancer made me a better person, right? And um, now it's interesting, I think that, that she, so she's writing into that in, to some degree, she's writing into a context in which that narrative is out there, right? And this, um, it's, it's worth paying attention to in trying to think about some of the choices that she makes um, as she constructs her narrative. So uh, I would say it's, it's, it's striking and interesting that she says, you know, shallower, right? She doesn't go, obviously, she, and there she's in dialogue with the idea of better, right? 
she doesn't say worse, she doesn't say, um, you know, anything stronger than that. And then they, you get that kind of, um, you know, humor uh, in, in the irony. Um, so, so we could start with that. Okay, so she's, she's gonna take this stance and, and position herself in relationship to this larger narrative and give herself a kind of permission, right, not to be the noble sufferer, the, the one who's on this journey to, you know, um, self-improvement, right? She's, she's gonna give herself that permission. Um, and then, so I'd sort of start there. And then I'd start to say, all right, well, what then, how does this get played out, right? And there are a couple of things about it that are particularly significant. One is that the irony of the title is something that's pervasive in the, in, in the book as a whole. But what's interesting is that the irony really has, uh, let's say, um, different effects in different uh, in different um, vignettes that she um, tells us about, and one of the things that's striking about irony is that the relationship between the literal meaning of the, uh, of an utterance or presentation and the ironic meaning can vary, right? So sometimes the um, literal statement gets inverted. Right. But sometimes something about the literal statement um, carries over, right? And there's a whole range of things between that complete undermining of the literal and the, you know, sort of partial carryover of the literal. Um, and and Engelberg really takes advantage of that variety, and and we can see it. She's got there's a one there's a splash page uh, with the title "Everything Is My Enemy." And on that page, she has a whole range of things, um, you know, from um, uh, x-rays that she's had on her body to, um, uh, you know, bad food, uh, hot dogs, you know, uh, things like that. And there, what's interesting about it is that some of the things, you know, from a more objective perspective, what we know about cancer and its causes and so on, some of them are plausible things and some of them are implausible. Um, but for her, what she's capturing is that subjective feeling that everything is my enemy at the same time that she's able to say, she recognizes that everything is not my enemy and say, but some things are my enemy. Right, so it's it's a very kind of layered uh, irony, and she's she's really good with that. So I would try to get um, you know students to to see this kind of thing. The other thing I two other things that I would point out that are really important is that um, it's a serial narrative, right? So basically, what what she does is she, you know she's writing as she's going through diagnosis treatment. Uh, aftermath and so on. So it's not a single retrospective, okay? Mm -hmm. I look back and I can tell you the story of my cancer and what happened to me. It's, you know, these, these different snapshots. 
And there's, um, so that's, that creates a different kind of relationship between the, the, the teller and the audience because neither of them know the outcome, right? So we're sort of immersed in this ongoing, unfolding narrative as is, as is she, right? Um, and that, that has lots of consequences for the way which the whole book is put together and the effects it has. So I would pay attention to that in the collection. And then the third thing, um, uh, which is connected to that, is that the, as a serial narrative, she's doing sort of short takes, right? Um, and so she'll have one about um, ace bandages. And, and it's a funny thing about um, after her surgery, she's wrapped in the largest ace bandage that she's ever um, imagined even, right? And then she, so, so she riffs on that for, for a couple of pages, right? And then she's got um, uh, another one on um, the survivor metaphor, right? So the idea of, you know, cancer, you have cancer, you, uh, you go through treatment and then you're a survivor. And then she, but she's critical of that. What does that mean, right? Um, if you die, is this, was it your fault? You know, the warrior and the survivor kind of thing, right? Um, so, you know, these are very different kind of things and we get one, then we get another and, and so on. And then we sort of build the larger story um, out of all of them, uh, out of the collection of them. But what's interesting to me is that um, some of them are more lyrical than narrative in the sense that what she's trying to do is sort of take an aspect of her experience and in a way sort of freeze it and then un unpack it, you know, let us, let us see what it means to be at this moment uh, in this, you know, on this larger journey. And so it, it becomes this kind of hybrid form, I think it's, it's, it's lyrical and, it, and it's also narrative because there is a sense of progression from diagnosis to treatment. Um, and ultimately she, she stops writing when after the cancer comes back and she's pretty much knowing that you know, she's gonna die. Um, so it's very powerful. And you can see from the slide, uh, from, you know, in, in your example here, that she's, it's a very simple kind of thing. The, the drawings themselves are, you know, not elaborate, it's black and white and um, all that. But out of that, she creates a really very, very rich um, uh, lyric narrative. Right, and uh, powerfully kind of a counter, a counter and sort of honest narrative, right? In and through the right. visuals and the right. text. Yeah. Right. In that sense, you know, I think she's, she's, she is, even though she's focused on her experience, she does provide a window, you know, you think about the thematic part of it, right? So it's a highly mimetic, you know, her individual experience, but, but it is a kind of, you know, going back to the idea that um, she's giving herself permission Right, not to be on this journey of self-improvement, she's 
he's providing a, a model in a way for others um, and also broadening you know for people who aren't suffering from cancer or whatever broadening your sense of you know what it's like um, so I, I find it to be a real very powerful book you have built i mean talk about unified theory um you we have this sort of center for narrative project narrative at osu you have the we have narrative journal the society international society for the study of narrative you, the book series and i know that of course it takes many people to do this but really you're the kind of gravitational center I, I, well, I guess I could ask you, where do you find the energy? But more sort of generally, yeah, I guess this gets back to the point of um, kind of the research program question, why? <laughs> well, um, you know, I guess uh, there's a certain kind of faith, right? That it matters, right? That, that narrative is important, right? That... Um, you know, it's, it's sort of, again, go back to narrative as a way of knowing, narrative as a way of doing, and, and then you start to see it. It's everywhere, right? And, um, and all these things we've talked about, right? There's, there's a faith that getting to understand them um, actually gets us to understand who we are and what we're doing in the world and the way the world works uh, in, a, in a sort of better, richer way, right? And then, you know, of course, the rhetorical, the way I think about it, right, I, the rhetorical way is one way. It's not the only way and it's, you know, um, and so if you can provide a space for multiple ways and provide, you know, opportunities for, um, so many scholars to, to pursue this, you know, it, it pursue in distinctive ways a common interest, then that's a wonderful thing. Um, and I've been fortunate, you know, to be able to have opportunities to do that, to, you know, have colleagues like you and, um, you know, and the kind of contributions you make and, you know, everybody in Project Narrative, right? Um, you know, I'm sort of the, you know, we have different kinds of overlaps of interests and, you know, things that we share, but we're all distinctive too, right? And I think that's, that's really, really valuable. And so, you know, most of my writing really is in the rhetorical mode, but when I think as an editor, I'm, I want to think about, you know, the plurality of, of um, productive ways of engaging with narrative and to provide a, you know, promote that and so on. And, and there's something also, you know, about doing that, and you know this from your own extensive editing work, you, you, you keep learning, you know, you, as you, you're engaging with the ideas of others and, and that, ex, you know, that expands uh, your own thinking. And, and so, you know, I feel very fortunate that uh, I've, I have such good colleagues. I, I have a good relationship with the press. The, the Narrative Society, I think, is a wonderful organization. Um, you know, and, you know, you, I give you credit for giving us the idea in Project Narrative to do the Summer Institute and, uh, you know, the opportunity to work closely with you and, you know, other 
teaching together, that's, that's great because you learn more and um, you get to know your, you know your colleagues in a way that's, that's particularly valuable. So, yeah. you know, why? I mean, I care and I've had great opportunities and great colleagues. So I think that's the answer. Yeah, it's a real model of kind of productive, progressive, harmonious model for kind of, you know, engaged scholarship and scholarship and scholars to kind of share space and build knowledge, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, the hard part of being an editor is saying no to people, when you, have to, you know, reject things and yeah. so on. But, you know, you try to do that in a way that's also, you know, productive and helpful. Um, Absolutely. When I was starting out, one of the first uh, essays I sent uh, was to PMLA, and I, you know, young and ambitious and so on. And, um, I got such negative and hostile <laughs> rejection uh, readings. Uh, I still remember one of them said, uh, you know, page 28 should be um, cast in stone and hung around Phelan's neck. <laughs> you know, that's okay. You know, punishment for producing it. You know, it's sort of like the version of the Scarlet Letter. Um, um, so, yeah. so that that that's sort of informed the way I try to uh, function as an editor. Like that's the negative example. Right. Yeah. And those experiences for it's. I know for both of us are um, we never leave them behind. They're right there in our rearview mirror. And I know right. um, you and I and others are are very constructively critical um so jim yeah <laughs> what's next i don't even like the the summa it seems like it keeps moving for you yeah well you know i just i mean i want to keep learning i think that you know the medical humanities and the narrative medicine thing is i've been very good in, in that regard in terms of um you know making me um think some more about you know um, maybe applied narrative theory, you know, um, in that regard. Um, I do have a, I do have a contract uh, to co-author a, a book with um, a, a doctor who's uh, John Vaughan, who I taught with here for a while. And when we first started the narrative in medicine undergraduate class, and he's since gone on to Duke. Um, but we have a contract with Rutledge to do a, an art of medicine uh, book that could be uh, used in, in classrooms. Um, and I also have uh, a book on um, that somewhere that I've started and I still have a long way to go, but on um, uh, sort of interpreting narrative um, with from a rhetorical perspective that I would hope could also be used uh, in the classroom. So those are the two kind of immediate uh, bigger things um you know in addition i want to keep you know project narrative going and uh you know financially <laughs> healthy and uh you know continue to develop the medical humanities at, at osu thank you jim so much for sharing your journey your time you are a builder of not just story worlds but of fields um, and have shaped so many lives in such a positive way. Thank you. Thank you, Frederick. It was a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for 
you know, making this so easy and congenial.